Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rosner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Thursday this week, January 4th at 10.30 a.m. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today we are joined by Paige Winfield Cunningham of the Washington Post. Good morning, Julie. Alice Alstein of Talking Points Memo. Happy New Year. And Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Happy New Year. So I'm calling this episode Holiday Leftovers, which is not to say things we didn't get to talk about before the break weren't important, but just that we ran out of time. In fact, lots of important things happened on the health beat. They just kind of got overshadowed by the big tax bill and the repeal of the individual mandate for health insurance. Although having just said that, we have some breaking news this morning. The administration's rule on association health plans is out. That's a a very nerdy thing to be excited about, but I know we are all excited about it. If you recall, this is an idea that's been kicking around in Congress literally since the 1990s. Now President Trump says he can make it happen without legislation. I want to talk about it in a minute, but first, can somebody explain what these plans are? Margot. So the idea is that there are a bunch of different regulatory universes for employer health plans there, and one of them is this group called ERISA plans. So these are large employer plans. They tend to be, although they're not all, in multiple states. And they are self-insuring for the purposes of offering insurance. So basically, they pay all of the medical claims bills that come in, and they're not contracting out directly with an insurance company to take on the financial risk. So if they have a year where their employees have a lot of illness Uh, They are on the hook for all of those bills. If they have a year where their employees are really healthy, then they pay less. And so um, what this is trying to do is to expand access to that kind of insurance to smaller employers by allowing them to band together into groups. So you could imagine, say... I don't know, an association health plan for bakers in which, you know, lots of small bakeries around a state or around the country or around a region would all get together and they would buy the baker's health insurance plan and they would provide health benefits for the bakers. So a few things about this. One important thing is that these plans that are governed under this federal labor law called ERISA are not... It's actually a retirement benefit law that coincidentally, had been extended to cover health plans. Right. I mean, part of what's weird about this is that this law was not really established to cover health plans. And so Congress has had to, over the years, make little changes over time to try to deal with you know, malfeasance in the health benefits space. But so one thing is that a lot of state insurance regulations do not apply to plans that are governed under the ERISA statute because the federal law sort of preempts state laws. So, for example, a really important rule that states try to do is make sure that health plans are solvent. So if you want to sell insurance in a state or if you want to self-insure in a state for uh, your employees, you need to demonstrate that you actually have enough money that you can pay the medical bills if your employees get sick or your customers get sick. Uh, ERISA doesn't have those kinds of standards. And also, ERISA is not subject to a lot of the consumer protection rules, both in the states and under the ACA. So things like the essential health benefits rule that say all plans have to cover a group of benefits, um, some of the risk adjustment rules that say that healthier and sicker plans have to um, cross-subsidize each other, and a few others. And so 
what the Trump administration wants to do is they want to make it easier for small groups to band together and act like big groups. And this is what Trump was talking about uh, last week when he spoke with The New York Times, when he talked about millions of people are joining associations. So, like, that hasn't happened yet. But now, now maybe it will happen. Well, it's not going to uh, – this, this isn't an – this rule isn't going to be effective for, for a while. It's just, at this point, just a proposal for comment. So but this is what still not going to happen for a while. Is, yeah, I mean, his, 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 uh, his contention that millions of people have already signed up is, like, clearly not right. But he, this is what he was talking about, is this idea that you can kind of have – a federal market for health insurance as opposed to state-by-state regulation and state-by-state offering. Well, he's basing all of this on the assumption that you would even have enough businesses that would band together in these associations. And let's remember that this, to some degree, has been legal for for quite some time and actually hasn't been taken up by a lot of businesses. Um, I I remember uh, last October when... It's like selling across... It's exactly like selling across state lines. Right, because there's a lot of obstacles to kind of doing this. But... um, um, you know, when Trump first announced his intention to do this back in October, I took a look at a GAO report that was actually issued in 1992 that found some really, really big problems with association health plans. And um, a lot of them don't have the oversight from from states, as, as Margot mentioned. And so um, they actually found that almost 400,000 people had had benefits that hadn't been paid by some of these plans um, in almost every state um, they had found um, just some 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 major problems with the, with the plans really not standing up to what they had promised their members, um, and so there's not really a great track record for association health plans. And and you know, I mean, you could argue that depending on what the rule what you know what the rule says is more the or the proposed rule says um, there could be you know better oversight than there has been possibly. But um, as far as the promises Trump has made, I don't think that he has the history to really back up the idea that association health plans are going to suddenly and dramatically expand access to this great health insurance for all of these people and these, uh, you know, in these uh, plans. But there's also a big concern that if it is a success, if associations really do want to do this, and I know the Chamber of Commerce and the National Federation of Independent Business has wanted this for decades, um, that it could hurt the existing individual market. Alice, you're nodding your head. Right. And um, so the right, the concern is that it will siphon away people who otherwise would have gone into the more regulated market and bought a more comprehensive plan that is backed up by these solvency requirements. If they have a health crisis, their bills will be paid. And the benefit requirements, more, right. I mean, more importantly. Definitely, because um, even though in the press release this morning about the proposed rule, they said there will be no discrimination based on pre-existing conditions, essentially guaranteed issue in this new association market, um, that the essential health benefits are not guaranteed. And those could be things as simple as your prescription medication or being able to go to the emergency room. I mean, really basic uh, coverage. So um, if people go into those plans, maybe not aware that, you know, if you get hit by a car, maybe your emergency room visit will not be covered. Um, That could be a problem uh, by further shrinking the um, small group market under the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, consumer advocates that I have been hurriedly talking with this morning sort of have two sets of concerns about this. So one is that people who go into these association plans could get screwed. And there actually is a long history of association and ERISA governed plans over the decades that were really scammy where, you know, either they ran out of money and they, you know, someone who got sick in the middle of the year, their claims were never paid and the insurer ran away 
or they just didn't cover a lot of really important benefits and people found out too late that what they thought was good employer insurance actually was lacking in a lot of benefits. So they're concerned that that people will buy these plans, that businesses will buy these plans, um, particularly small businesses that may not be as sophisticated about benefit design, and then it will turn out that their employees really get harmed. They are also concerned about, you know, the group that Alice is talking about, the people who remain behind in the individual and small group markets because you have to assume, you know, if you are an employee with HIV or um, substance abuse problems or some or, you know, serious mental health issues, some very expensive health care problem that is kind of where you need very particular benefits in order to get your problem addressed, you're going to look at the fine print. And so if you're, uh, you know, considering joining an association plan and you see, oh, it doesn't cover inpatient psychiatric care. Uh, you're probably not going to buy that plan. You're going to buy a plan in the individual market. And so what that means is that the people left behind in the Obamacare-regulated markets are more likely to be sick people who are not interested in this kind of skimpier coverage. And so it leads to this splitting of the market where the Obamacare markets sort of become more like a high-risk pool and the association really health high plans premiums. become mm-hmm. uh, a place where healthier people get coverage. And let's remember this is already an effect that we're probably going to see because of the repeal of the individual mandate and now potentially younger, healthier people deciding not to buy coverage. So this could sort of augment that problem going forward. So one amazing thing is that in the text of the rule, they talk about the individual mandate as if it had not been repealed. (laughs) Uh, um, Although in a footnote, it does note that it has been um, it will be repealed after after 2019. But um, but yes, it says, oh, well, this will be mitigated. You know, the, the adverse selection problem will be mitigated by the requirement that most people purchase insurance or pay a penalty. Footnote, Oops. that was repealed in the tax bill. <laughs> um, so in I mean, we, we've seen a lot in this administration, sort of the left hand not talking to the right hand. But this is yet another example where they're sort of acknowledging the problems in the very text of it. Well, I also think this rule has been in the works for some time and has been sitting at OMB for some time. And so in defense of the Department of Labor, I think when they wrote this regulation, it hadn't been been revealed yet. And so now they're trying to slip in a footnote at the last minute. That was was sort of the rumor of what, because like we had heard in like mid-December that it was going to come out. Like I remember on a Friday, everybody was talking about it and then it didn't come out. And I think it was because they were watching what was going on on Capitol Hill and the repeal of the mandate and and like trying to figure out how to then address it as they wrote the final, uh, the proposed rule. Well, I'll be interested to see, you know, this is something that I have covered in Congress since the mid 1990s. And, you know, all of a sudden, this 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 idea that needed legislation, the, the administration thinks they can do by regulation. So, I yeah, will, so I'll I, be I curious to, to see how they've, you know, threaded that needle and administrative lawyers with more expertise than I have on this very complicated subject uh, will probably be weighing in soon. Yeah, I think that's one thing that is pretty important here is, does the Department of Labor have the like sort of legal leeway to make this kind of major change. So, you know, this ERISA is a law that has been on the books for several decades. And over time, because actually of problematic association health plans, um, Congress has gone back several times and made changes to 
ERISA to try to deal with exactly these kinds of arrangements. And there has also been for some time a real push among Republicans on the Hill, and I think the Bush administration too, to try to establish association health plans through legislation. There's been legislation that's been introduced many, many times. It passed the House many, many. When the House was Republican in the 1990s, it passed the House repeatedly and never got anywhere in the Senate. And it was also a big section of the um, BCRA uh, last year. So there have been, uh, there's all that this indication. First, the first repeal and replace bill. The second repeal the second, Excuse me. The second. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, there have been all of these signals that Congress thinks that these changes should be made by it and need to be made by legislation. And there was a piece um, by Ural Levin, who had worked in the Bush administration um, that was published a couple of months ago, where he said that the Bush administration really looked closely at whether they could achieve this through regulation because they couldn't get it through Congress. And the view of lawyers in the Bush administration was that it was not possible to use regulation to make these kinds of broad changes to ERISA to allow association health plans. So I think that there is a lot of potential for litigation uh, if this rule becomes finalized in its current form. This administration has been very good for administrative lawyers. Um, <laughs> let, let us move on. Um, just after we last met, Congress passed yet another short-term spending bill that's now keeping the government open until January 19th. It's also that same bill is funding the Children's Health Insurance Program, community health centers, and a bunch of other health programs, but only through March 31st. Now, that sounds good, but it's problematic. Yes, Alice? Yes, they were hoping for a five-year authorization of CHIP. They passed one through the House. Uh, Democrats did not like the cuts it made elsewhere, um, especially in the healthcare space, to pay for that plan. And so it went nowhere in the Senate and faced with sort of imminent doom in several states and and freezing enrollment, um, notices going out to families saying your children's health insurance could not be available soon. They passed this short-term extension, sort of kick the can down the road. Um, and so they could circle back and tackle it again this coming week. We have another short-term spending bill debate showdown coming up, another opportunity for them to argue over this. Although and, it looks like they're going to argue over immigration more. Yes. Right. I think. Well, I think the Democrats really want to get the immigration question kind of settled before they tackle the other stuff. But, you know, I asked a lot of lobbyists about this yesterday, about what the CHIP approach will be. And they were sort of divided. Some thought that they really have to tackle the CHIP funding in, in the January 19th. Uh, bill because it's kind of like the only way that you figure out how to how to pay for it or you come to that agreement. Others thought that they might punt it to the end of March because Congress tends to wait till till the last minute to do anything. But I think you you could argue that Republicans in a way kind of made a strategic error in agreeing to the framework of of the bill before agreeing to the pay fors because now Democrats are sort of able to to to, to block it because they don't like the pay fors and Republicans have already shown their hand by agreeing to the provisions in CHIP. Meaning the five-year extension and the, the slow they, phase out of the extra money that states exactly, are getting. Right. Yeah, the, the policy is completely bipartisan. Exactly, exactly. But now you could argue that they don't have a lot of great like bargaining power in a sense. Um, they, the Republicans. The Republicans don't. Right. Because the Democrats can can just kind of, you know, they. I mean, they, they really don't like how they're pulling money from the prevention fund and the Affordable Care Act. They don't like the fact that Republicans want to charge some higher premiums to wealthier seniors to pay for it. And so anyhow, I think a lot of this will become more clear over the next couple of weeks. But at this point, I'm not sure whether it's going to be in the spending bill or, or or the, you know, at the end of March. And Democrats also are, you know, have have another sort of rhetorical tool because the 
tax bill was prioritized by Republicans over addressing all of these health care crises. And so now they can say, well, you didn't demand any pay for us for this massive tax break for corporations, but you're demanding pay for us for children's insurance. And there, there was a, a whole lot of that and tiny Tim references and coal in your stocking references before, before the break. Coal. Actual <laughs> waving around pieces of coal in press conferences. Congress can be fun sometimes. The, the other big piece that we're watching, of course, is these market stabilization bills. And my sense is the prospects of at least the Alexander Murray bill are are dimming. Um, this is the bill to put back the um, the subsidies for low income enrollees in the individual market. Um, although those subsidies have now been sort of let us say the insurers are being reimbursed in many great cases by the federal government. Just. In different in, ways. Correct. And, and this in better ways for some people. Yeah. Right. That's well, right. Well, and this gets like really complicated and wonky, so I'll try to make it simple. But basically Democrats are now arguing that they don't that 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 they that you need to revamp Alexander Murray because it was originally forged under the assumption that the individual mandate was still in place. And I talked to Dem staffers yesterday who said now basically if you restore these payments, that has the weird effect of making these bronze and gold plans actually less affordable for the low-income consumers. Which is what Alice was just referring to. That exactly. The, that the weird way insurers are getting this money back by, by raising premiums has caused premium subsidies to rise. And so people can get these amazing deals. They can get free bronze plants or they can get cheap gold plants. As long as plants. they get a subsidy. As long as they get it. That's right. The people who aren't getting subsidy are, are and getting that, the whole bill. that effect was not predicted when Alexander Murray was originally written. And so right. it was written with all of these assumptions that have sort of been proven otherwise. So now the idea is if you restore these cost-sharing reduction payments, then basically the premiums go back down, which means the, the subsidies get less generous for the people who can receive them. If the subsidies in turn get less generous and the plans get less affordable, you could argue that some of these lower income folks now, because they're not required to buy insurance, might decide not to buy insurance. And so now ba- basically Dems are saying, like, look, Republicans, you rewrote the rules. These were not the the rules back when we made this bipartisan deal. And so now you're going to have to agree to revamp the legislation or we're basically done with this. And so so I, I, I see Dems like backing away from it. Um, and, 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 and frankly, just like because there was this unexpected effect of making the subsidies more generous, that I don't think they really view the, the cost sharing payments maybe as necessary as they previously did. So I, I think I've said this before, but I mean, one thing that's interesting about this debate is it really pits different beneficiaries of Obamacare against each other. And I think there are sort of partisan leanings about who uh, the different parties care more about. So getting rid of the cost sharing reductions was risky. But the way that it worked out is that low income people or middle income people who get subsidies. Lower the, the, or the, the the lowest income people who buy their own insurance. Who buy, yes, sorry, who buy their own insurance. The so people you're under of, two, 250 percent right. of federal poverty. You know, people who are under 400 percent of federal poverty. Well, people the, who get some kind of government oh, some kind of subsidy oh, for, anybody, premium, for, for their premium. Okay. That they are in almost every state better off without the cost-sharing reductions than they would be with the cost-sharing reductions because of the way that insurance regulators and insurers have organized their pricing. But the premiums are still higher for a lot of people who buy their own insurance and don't qualify for a subsidy. So if you're someone who's paying full freight, if you're sort of a more you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class uh, professional, say, uh, you are definitely exposed to these premium increases, which are quite substantial this year. Although a lot of a lot of states did try to load it 
just onto the silver plant. So there are opportunities if you're not getting a subsidy there are to buy a bronze or a gold plant that, that, doesn't, that doesn't have these increases. In there, I think there's much more variation by state. Uh, in t- I think that people who pay their own premiums in full are more hurt by this than people who get subsidies. I just think that they are less insulated from the increases associated with it. They, if, if for no other reason, then they end up with less choice of which plan they can buy. Um, and, you know, Republicans have tended to care about that constituency. Those were the people who were in the individual market prior to Obamacare. Those are the people who, you know, theoretically are going to be interested in association health plans and things like that. I think the Democrats largely are concerned about the kind of low and middle class consumers who need subsidies. And so I think that's part of what Page is is talking about is the Democrats kind of feel like, oh, like these low income consumers are sort of better off. Uh, We're not so concerned about fixing this problem. Uh, But the Republicans, you know, even though they have been against the idea of an insurer bailout or, you know, various tags that have gone along with this bill, I think they are a little bit concerned about the high prices for people who are paying for their own insurance. I feel like the only person really enthused about the CSR deal right now is Senator Susan Collins, (laughs) who had had predicated her entire tax overhaul vote on these supposed promises she got from Senate Majority Leader McConnell that they would be able to vote on this bill. So. Yeah, well, more on this to come, but let (laughs) let us move on for the moment. Um, We had a couple of important court decisions in December. One blocked enforcement of the Trump administration's controversial birth control rules, which were rewrites of the Obama administration's controversial birth control rules. Someone please remind me what that all entailed. So Obamacare said that preventive health services needed to be covered without a copayment. And then there was a process. And at the end of that process, there was a determination that all forms of FDA-approved birth control counted as preventive health care, and therefore that health plans had to cover all of them, and they had to cover all of them with no copayment for beneficiaries. So basically, everyone in the United States now who buys a health insurance plan uh, gets access to all of those forms of birth control without a copayment. But there were exceptions for religious organizations, so churches, you know, that had a religious objection to birth control didn't have to offer it to their employees, so, like, you know, nuns aren't getting it. Um, and then there were additional carve-outs over time that the Obama administration made for religiously affiliated employers. And then there were some court cases challenging this. and Lots some, of court cases. And so certain this. other categories of, employee, of, of employers that closely held corporations that had religious convictions could uh, – not cover certain forms of birth control. But largely, most employers were continue to be required to offer this kind of coverage. And what the Trump administration did is they issued a rule that made the exceptions much broader and essentially said almost any kind of employer that has a religious objection. Or a moral objection. I'm getting there. Oh, It <laughs> <laughs> um, has a religious objection, can decline to offer this these services. And also that certain kinds of employers that have a moral objection can decline to offer these services. So this was challenged. In, and I'm sorry, one more thing that's important. They uh, issued this change in uh, a interim final rule. So what that means is that normally with regulations like the Association Health Plan regulation that came out today, first there's a proposed rule, then there's a period of notice and comment. People can submit their thoughts about it. There's discussion about it. Sometimes there's public meetings. There's like a process. Then you get to a final rule. So there's some warning that it's coming and there's some process of review. This rule was issued as what's called an interim final rule, which means it went into effect right away. Uh, So there have been court challenges around the country to this rule. 
Uh, some of them saying that it's all of them saying that it's illegal for various reasons, but also many of them saying that this rulemaking process actually was illegal, that there was not a good enough reason to avoid the whole notice and comment process. And now we're starting to get results from those court cases and two judges, one in in Pennsylvania and one in California have basically said that these rules are not acceptable and that they should be prevented from going into effect until the uh, cases have come to their end. But both of them give very strong signals that uh, the regulatory process was was broken and that these rules should not be allowed to go into effect. And they also give some indications on the substance that they think that there are problems with what the rules say and whether they're legal. The one, the ruling in uh, mid-December, I forget which state it was, maybe was, California. Was well, there's one, the first one was in Pennsylvania. 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 Okay, so it must have been the Pennsylvania. But um, I was struck by something the judge wrote, and she, was, she actually made the argument that potentially employers who didn't want to attract female employees could use this as a as a way to, you know, basically deny that kind of coverage. And if a potential a prospective employee was looking for birth control coverage, that this would be like sort of this roundabout discriminatory way that they could make their company less attractive to women. Um, which I don't I don't know like how many employers would actually do that, but that that was kind of interesting. And even even when the rule was uh leaked a draft of it earlier in uh last year, um talking to some of the groups who did go on to sue were pointing out all all of the various fronts on which it could be challenged and has been challenged. And it, it is interesting that they're citing both the sort of rushed process that they use to push it through as well as the substance itself sort of makes you wonder if they if they had carefully gone through all of the steps, if this, this could have had more success um, or if it is – discriminatory towards women in this way, um, you know, singling out out of the whole universe of preventative care, singling out birth control in particular um, opens up for legal challenge as discriminatory towards women. It doesn't really surprise me that the Trump administration seemed to kind of like push this through without that comment period, because I think they felt like under tremendous pressure to make these kinds of moves that really appeal to social conservatives. I mean, let's remember that like the only reason that a lot of the anti-abortion groups and conservative groups got behind Trump during his campaign was his specific promises to fight abortion when he could um, kind of side with them on these contraceptive issues. And so especially given the Trump administration's failure to fulfill the Obamacare repeal replace promises, um, I think that HHS, particularly when Tom Price was there, kind of saw this side of things as like a way to kind of placate the base and and appear to be filling, fulfilling some of those health care promises that they had made during the campaign. Although I, I talked to some some you know outside analysts, not, not advocates on either side, who suggested that perhaps the Trump administration was trying to have it both ways by doing this, that they put out this rule that they knew was flawed in terms of procedure to please the base. On the other hand, they knew it would get struck down so it wouldn't cause a backlash. Then they could have a win-win. That would be sophisticated. I'm not <laughs> sure if I... If is I, it a win-win uh, or is it a lose-lose? <laughs> I, I, I wonder if, like, I, I don't know if I would give that much credit to HHS with sort of the chaotic mess that things have been in with all of the price turmoil and then them not having a leader for the past four months. But that's an interesting theory. It's also and interesting, we, you know, it depends how the courts ultimately find. So these are kind of preliminary <clears throat> findings in order to determine whether to stop the rule from going into effect. But these these cases are going to proceed and there's going to ultimately be some kind of final judgment on the merits. And if the courts just say this is procedurally flawed, 
but substantively okay, or that parts of it are substantively okay, then the Trump administration can basically go back, do a proposed rule, do notice and comment rulemaking, have a final rule, and they actually probably there probably are ways that they can broaden the exceptions to this mandate through like a, an allowable legal process. But if the courts say no, 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 you just like can't do this at all, then that's game over. Well, let's remember the Supreme Court upheld the challenges largely to this back in the was it 2014 case? I mean, where, no, it was the ne- or, Zubik was the next year. Well, first, Hobby first Lobby. This, what, they had Hobby Lobby, and then they had there been two different. There was one case that they found for the the religious rights of the the closely held corporations, but then when the, when all the the church groups went um, because they had gotten an exemption, but they didn't. They thought that the exemption still made them complicit because they had to actually sign a piece of paper that said we we have a we have a religious objection to doing this, and therefore you know we're not going to, which would trigger someone else offering the coverage. But they didn't even want to sign the piece of paper, and those. Those cases went to the Supreme Court and they were all sent back. So they haven't oh, been. Oh, that's Remember, right. Remember, there were only eight, eight members of the Supreme Court and they were split. Right, right, right. Okay. So. Okay. So the, so the court's been kind of split on this. But yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if they took this up eventually. But it is interesting. In order to get the two preliminary injunctions that we've gotten so far, the courts have found that this, if not blocked, would cause harm to, to women. Um, and so that is sort of gives us a flavor of some of the arguments to come. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, one one more court decision. Um, a federal district court this week effectively struck down a rule from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission about how employers can run their wellness programs, these programs that some big employers have on the theory that if we keep our, our employees um, healthy, they will continue to come to work. Um, they are benign-sounding ideas, as I said, aimed at keeping workers healthy, but there's a growing body of evidence that some of them can end up discriminating against sick people by making them effectively pay more for their insurance. Who wants to wade into this quagmire? Margo, you've looked at this. Yeah, so I'm really fascinated by this. So there um, there was kind of a real boomlet of interest uh, in this idea that employers should be able to use certain kinds of financial incentives, what are considered voluntary financial incentives, to get their employees to engage in healthy behaviors. So uh, things like getting them to quit smoking or exercise more, or lose weight, uh, lower their blood pressure, Whatever. There's a, there are a number of different ideas. And written into the Affordable Care Act was a provision that said that employers could essentially increase the premiums on workers who did not comply with these incentives by as much as 30 percent. And it's a little bit similar to uh, the Affordable Care Act also has a provision in the exchanges that if you're a smoker, you can be charged up to 50 percent higher premium. So this is sort of the same idea. It's like, you know, if you're going to do unhealthy stuff that increases the cost of your insurance, like you should have to pay a little bit more. And these are supposed to deal with behaviors that are not related to sort of health conditions that you have no control over. So it's not supposed to hurt you because you have some kind of, if you have a chronic condition that you uh, inherited, for example. Type 1 diabetes. (laughs) Type 1 diabetes, great. Great example. (laughs) But it is supposed to say if you smoke, like that's a choice, you could stop smoking. And if you're going to sort of burden everyone with the cost of your smoking, you should pay more. Um, But it turns out that this rule... uh, crashes right up against the Americans with Disability Act, which says that you're not supposed to discriminate against people on the basis of how healthy or sick they are. And so uh, these rules have been caught up in a court case for some time. And essentially what the court said is that um, the regulation, which interpreted what the Affordable Care Act said, 
uh, is crashing up against the ADA. And, and GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Disclosure non -disclosure Act. Yeah. Uh, in an unacceptable way and that they have to basically go back to the drawing board. They get like it's going to stay in effect for a year while and that's going to give the EEOC, give employers time to adjust. And then the EEOC has got to come up with a new rule. But it's pretty interesting because, you know, this is really something that was in the Affordable Care Act. I don't think that the rules really deviate that much from what the legislation said. No, there was a huge debate when this went into the, the Affordable Care Act. And there is, you know, over time, there has been more research into these wellness programs. So there was some early research around the time the Affordable Care Act passed that it seemed like actually they worked, that companies that used various types of wellness incentives actually were lowering their um, health care spending because they were effective in getting employees to be healthier. Be healthier. <laughs> but over time, the evidence base for that really has eroded. And so what it looks like is to the degree that employers are getting a return on their investment for these programs, it's largely because people who are subject to these higher premiums or big penalties are just dropping out of the plan. There's also more evidence about like the degree to which these kinds of financial incentives are effective in improving people's health behaviors. So like how how much money does it cost to like get someone to lose weight? It turns out actually it's like pretty hard to use money to pe get people to lose weight because losing weight is really hard. People have a lot of other incentives to do it. Uh, and so it's I think just the kind of evidence base for this idea has eroded. And now we have this legal problem, too. All right. Well, let us let us move on. Uh, we're going to wrap things up with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Um, Paige, you want to go first? Yeah. Well, the headline of this New York Times story kind of caught my eye. It's called In Pursuit of Liquid Gold. And it's one of these great stories that kind of traces how financial incentives drive the testing or care that people people receive. And and basically, there are all of these court cases kind of arising around all of these um, clinics and labs that have been trying to profit by having patients that have drug addiction problems undergo uh, just a insane number of urine tests, um, just routinely, even tests that don't necessarily are, are not necessarily targeted at the drugs that they're known to be using. And some of these labs and clinics are charging more than $4,000 per test, depending on the type of insurance that the patient has. And so all of these lawsuits have arisen between insurers and labs. Um, and of course, insurers are now kind of cracking down a little bit on how much they'll reimburse for these tests. But it's just a really interesting article that uh, they inter this is especially a big problem in Florida. Um, there's this group called Next Health, this lab group that has been really making these huge profits off of these urine tests. And so the article just kind of dives into uh, into this whole this whole scenario and and the huge range. I mean, when you look at like how much these tests cost, they could be anywhere from like seventy dollars to you know several thousand dollars. And so it's an interesting story that just kind of illuminates this. Um, um, you know, this 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 thing that most of us don't see is the interaction between the insurers and the providers and how the profits kind of driving all of this. And I would just point out if this sounds familiar that uh, my colleagues at Kaiser Health News um, did did basically the same story in November. And I think we recommended it then. So I will post links to both stories on the site. I, one thing, I think the Times story obviously is terrific, but uh, one thing that is really terrific about the Kaiser story, which was published in Bloomberg, is the art, which I really recommend that everyone look at. It's sort of shocking and, <laughs> and, and wonderful. So you'll be able to click on that. Um, Alice. Um, I have been looking at a pretty shocking and sort of infuriating piece in ProPublica about 
how much um, spending and uh, products in our medical system are wasted every year. And um, there's just across the country warehouses and warehouses full of discarded medication, you know, never opened, unexpired, um, and supplies from hospitals and clinics that just gets thrown away when they when they change providers. They just throw away the old stuff, even though it's unused and perfectly good. Um, and all of that totals up to $765 billion a year, which this uh, article calculates would be enough to pay the insurance premiums of 150 million people, which is just staggering. Awesome. And um, there just are, there's a sort of patchwork of programs in some states, some individual charities to collect the discarded stuff and and donate it to either another country or just, uh, you know, reroute it to someone who couldn't afford it otherwise. Um, they said nursing homes are a huge source of, of this waste. Um, you know, uh, someone passes away and they have months of medication for that person on hand that's still perfectly good and they just throw it away. So, um, very much something to think about. We we sort of have been, as a country, talking about how to eliminate food waste a, a bit more recently, which is another staggering area. But I think uh, medical waste is sort of a new front that we should be looking at. Well, I'm going to go next because I'm on the same theme of, of people people making money off the healthcare system. Um, mine is a story by my Kaiser Health News colleague, Jordan Rao, that ran in the New York Times called Care Suffers as More Nursing Homes Feed Money into Corporate Webs. It's a little bit complicated, but it's about a trend for nursing home owners to outsource a lot of their home service needs to other companies that are also owned by the nursing home owner. It's mostly a tax dodge. It's not illegal, but those companies that do the most self-dealing also appear to have fewer nurses and fewer aides and higher rates of problems for patients. And one thing that really struck me about this terrific article from Jordan Rao is that it's explicitly for many of these operators a strategy to avoid liability if they get sued by individual nursing home residents for poor care or if they get fined by the federal government. If the nursing home company is kind of poor, doesn't have a lot of assets, then if it like really screws up and gets hit with a big penalty, it isn't able to pay it. Meanwhile, the owners have the more profitable parts of their business in other companies that are not subject to these kinds of judgments. It was quite a piece. So, Margo, what is your extra credit? So mine is a little bit on the frivolous side, and it's also from the New York Times, which I don't like to always recommend things from my own paper. But there was a really um, hilarious story about the rise in interest in what's called raw or live water that uh, sort of um, very health-conscious sort of natural food types uh, in Silicon Valley and elsewhere have become enamored of the idea that they should drink water that has not been treated by municipal water systems or by water bottlers, that they should get their water directly from a spring and then distribute it to people, and that there are various uh, purported health benefits that come from this. Um, and it just it, it was sort of like a wonderful reminder to me that a lot of very rich, very educated people who you would think uh, would be interested in real science sort of seem to buy into a lot of pseudoscience when it comes to their health. So I would, I would feel like this would be a Gwyneth Paltrow kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> But 
But, you know, I mean, obviously, um, water, that, the reason why water is treated by municipal systems and by water bottlers is to prevent there from being uh, contaminants that can make you sick. Yes. Um. <laughs> it was kind of the basic foundation for public health in, in the 1800s. So we don't all get cholera. Yeah. <laughs> I but it just anti- reminds, reminds me of like sort of anti-vax movements among I was just these kind say of that. affluent, educated, yeah, communities. I wonder if this is the same people. Raw <laughs> milk is another one the yeah. sort of, and similar terminology here, too. But, uh, you know, I think people forget that um, the water and food supply uh, were once quite dangerous and full of bacteria, and maybe they're going to learn it again. (laughs) (laughs) We shall see. On that note, that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us, too. And if you really like the podcast, come see us in person. We'll be doing a live taping on Thursday, January 18th at 1 p.m. here at the Kaiser Family Foundation headquarters in downtown D.C., We'll have a special guest, and you can ask us questions in person. More details soon. You'll be able to RSVP on our website at khn.org. Meanwhile, if you'd rather comment electronically, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Alice Olstein. At PW underscore Cunningham. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.